Thanks for tuning in to the Link Church podcast. Link Church is located in Charlotte, North Carolina, and is committed to linking people to the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. We're just going to read one passage of scripture today for this morning's message, and it's going to come from Psalm 23, verse 5. So if you would turn, if you have your Bibles or if you have uh, an electronic device, whatever is um, available to you, turn to Psalm 23, and we're just going to read verse 5. If you don't have anything, it's okay because the scripture will be right on your screen. And it's our custom here at Link Church just to stand when we are ready to read the word of God just out of respect for God's word. So it's just one verse, and so because of that, I'm just going to read it in your hearing. And the word of God says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. That is the reading of God's word, and I'm going to speak to you this morning from the subject, When God Sets the Table. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy, and we are grateful, God, for your love. God, we are also just grateful that you have given us another opportunity to come into your house and to glean something from your word. God, we cannot live by bread alone, but out of every word that proceeds out of your mouth. And we trust you today, God, that your word is going to bring life, that it is going to make us whole, that it is going to convict us, God, if we are in need of conviction. And we know, oh God, that your word is going to do exactly what you have purposed it to do today. We rebuke the hand of the enemy right now in the name of Jesus Christ. We come against every hindering stronghold that would want to keep your word from flowing and going forth, oh God. And we thank you, Jesus. I ask God that as I do decrease that you would allow your power and your anointing and your spirit to increase oh God because we do not want to leave here without a word from you we are grateful God because we know that when we leave here we will leave changed and different than the way that we walked in we thank you for all these things in Jesus name amen amen you can take your seats when God sets the table uh for those of you that don't know, most of you probably do, but uh, my husband and I have two children. Uh, our daughter is seven and our son will be five in just a couple of weeks. And I have started teaching them how to set the table, right? Because my husband was kind of getting tired of the kids literally just kind of laying around uh, during dinner time. Meaning, I'd be in the kitchen cooking, and then after cooking, I would make sure that everything is on the table ready to serve, and then I would set the table. And he's like, these kids are old enough, get them to set the table. So uh, we've taught them uh, what utensils are needed for the meal, and we've taught them where on the table the utensils should go so that they know uh, where the fork goes versus the knife, right? And if we need to Two forks, for example, if you're having your salad fork and then the fork for your main course, they know where that goes as well. They know where to put the glass, put the napkin, and so on and so forth. And this is actually uh, one of the first things that we started teaching them as we're kind of adding to their chores list because it's something that's important. It's something that they should know, right? Uh, you're not always going to be receiving a guest into your home, but at least when you do receive a guest in your home, you'll know how to properly set the table. Uh, it also teaches them etiquette. 
right? Because uh, especially on a day where they have, let's say, more than one fork at the table, we've taught them that if you're in an environment or in an atmosphere where you seemingly have a million forks to your left, you'll know how to go. And one of the easiest tricks is to work your way in, right? And so don't start with the fork that you think is better. Like, ooh, that's a big salad. I'm going to start with the big fork. No, you still want to start with the salad fork. But these are things that um, etiquette, my mom used to call it home training, whatever you want to call it, but we have taught them how to set the table. Now, you would think that the kids don't like to set the table, and I think in the beginning they probably didn't because it was something that now they had to do something extra. But they've learned to like setting the table because they understand that when I call them to set the table, it means that the meal is ready, right? When I tell them, guys, wash your hands and come set the table, it means that the food has been prepared and we're ready to go. So I never ask them to set the table when dinner is still 30 minutes out or even 15 minutes out. I wait until I know dinner is ready and then I say to them, okay, now it's time to set the table because I know by the time they finish setting the table, I would have put everything in serving dishes if necessary and we're ready to eat. And so they're excited now, but it used to be a situation where when I would tell them um, that I was cooking dinner, they would just kind of come out at any random time during the meal prep and say, can we set the table now? And I would say, no, it's too early. And they would say, well, how about now? And I would say, no, it's still too early. And they would say, but I, I'm ready to set the table. And I would say, no, it's still too early because I didn't want to give them their meal before it was ready. A meal before it's ready is actually not beneficial to the person that you're serving. Because a meal that is not ready could yield uh, meat that is undercooked, vegetables that are undercooked, uh, starch or whatever else that you're serving that is undercooked. And while uh, food is supposed to be something that we use for nourishment and that we use for strength, if you serve it to somebody before it is completely finished or completely ready, you stand the risk of causing them to be sick, causing them to be ill. And so now the very thing that was supposed to nourish them and help them and strengthen them is to their detriment. So they used to get upset and they used to get frustrated. And I think some of us in modern times also get frustrated at uh, having to cook. Some people don't like to cook. I love to cook, but there are some people who feel like it takes too much time, it takes too much effort. Uh, I don't feel like having to uh, wash my meat, then season it. And listen, if you don't wash your meat, then we also would suggest that you probably not cook because that is an important step. Taking it out the package and seasoning it doesn't really, doesn't really work. Doesn't really work. Unless you're going for E. coli, then it's a perfect scenario. But uh, some people don't feel like having to take chicken out and then wash it properly then still have to season it, then still have to cook it, and then chicken is not enough because you need something to go with that chicken, right? You need greens, you need mac and cheese, you need sweet potatoes, you need something to go with that chicken. And so some people now go through uh, a drive-through, they go to a fast food restaurant because fast food, uh, when it first started, was all about literally being food that you could get quickly. It was all about getting food that you didn't have to wait a long time for, that you didn't have to prepare. But now, looking back on it, some of us are realizing that fast food actually is not that healthy. Right? You can go to certain places now, certain fast food places are saying that they're trying to uh, step up their game and make things healthier. But nine times out of ten, fast food is not really what 
you want to eat on a regular basis, right? It's prepared quickly, but because it's prepared so quickly, you may not be getting the, mess, the best meat, right? Uh, you may be getting seasonings that are actually not good for your health because they're just trying to quickly uh, salt and season everybody's food at the same time. Uh, you may be getting food that should not have been kept as a leftover as long as it has been, and they're just warming it up, and they're putting it on the tray, and they're handing it to you. But that is the danger of getting something before it's ready or getting something too quickly. And so the thing about when God sets the table is he takes his time. And usually he takes a longer time than what we like or what we want to experience. I've never really heard somebody say, uh, God always comes at the time that I want him to come. If he did, then the person would not have had to coin the phrase, he may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. Coming from experience, coming from somebody who says, well, now that I look at it, God was kind of on time, but Lord have mercy, he didn't come when I wanted him to. And some of us ask God for things just like my children ask, can we set the table? Can we set the table? Sometimes we ask God for things. Can I have this? Can I go there? Can I do that? And he continues to say, not yet. You're not ready. Not yet. It's not ready. Not yet. It's too soon. Not yet. You're a little bit ahead of schedule. Not yet. You're a little bit too early. And so sometimes some of us end up eating and consuming things, not just in the physical, but in the spiritual. And we try to figure out why did things not work out the way we expected? Why are we having such a hard time? Why are we having so many challenges? And it's because you arrived at the table too early. You try to make your own table. You try to prepare your own table. You try to give yourself a, a promotion. You try to give yourself favor with God and with man. You try to give yourself all of these things that God has not yet given to you, so you take matters in your own hand, and then the very thing that could have been used to your benefit is now to your detriment because you didn't wait for God to set the table. And so the other thing about God is that we start to say, well, if he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies, what does that mean? First thing is, if God is going to prepare a table for you, you have to have an enemy. And that is something that most of us don't want to acknowledge. We don't want an enemy. We want God to prepare us a table without an enemy, without a struggle, without a challenge, and without a fight. But how many of you know that many times the blessings of God actually are met with opposition? They are met with challenges. They are met with hardships. Not because he enjoys seeing you struggle, but the blessings of God don't just attract uh, the people that are around you that may be rooting for you, but they attract the enemy as well. He does not want to see you succeed. He does not want to see you blessed. And so when he sees that God is blessing you or that he's getting ready to bless you, here comes your enemy. But I also want you to know today that if you are seemingly surrounded by enemies, you should take heart and you should be excited 
and encourage because it simply means that God is preparing a table for you. He is making a way. He is getting ready to create a bridge over troubled waters. If you are surrounded by enemies, it's not that you are alone. It's that you are getting ready to be elevated because he prepares a table before me in the presence, not in the absence, but in the presence of my enemies. So then you have to ask yourself, well, what or who is an enemy, right? Some of us see our alarm clocks as the enemy. The alarm that goes off on a Monday morning for some is the enemy. Um, but I think enemies can kind of fall in different categories. Usually when we think of an enemy, we automatically think of a person. We automatically think of somebody that we can uh, talk to, someone that we can see, maybe someone that we can touch, and that can be the case. There are people out in this world who don't want to see you succeed. There are people on your job who don't want to see you go to the next level. There are people in your church who don't want to see you elevated to the next phase of ministry or purpose. There may be people in your neighborhood who are upset because your house has a bigger square footage than their house. Those things happen, but the enemy can often be the very thing that you can't see, right? Uh, the enemy can also be the inner me. So your enemy could actually be your self-doubt. Telling yourself that you're never going to succeed in your career, telling yourself that you'll never get a degree or complete the degree that you're working on, it could be low self-esteem, looking in the mirror every morning and disgusted by what you see. Not because God has not fearfully and wonderfully made you, but maybe you were always told that you were not tall enough, weren't light enough or dark enough, right? And so the enemy could also be your struggle to obey God because Remember, the Bible tells us that it's our obedience that's better than sacrifice. It's not that God doesn't want you to offer him a sacrifice. It's not that he doesn't want you to give or serve your church. But he says even beyond that, obedience is better. I mean, what good do you come to if you are doing all of these things for God, uh, but you are not obeying him in other areas of your life? So your enemy can even be uh, the spirit of disobedience that you seem to walk in, that you seem uh, to wallow in, that seems to always be around you. And so we look now and we say, okay, if God is going to prepare a table in the presence of my enemies, there's a few things that have to be at work here. Number one, in order for God to prepare a certain type of table for me, I have to have an enemy. I can't get around that. The second thing is I have to identify who or what is my enemy. Is it the person that is on my job? Is it the boss that's on my job that's trying to get me to meet unrealistic expectations? Is it the parent that has never accepted me and never cared for me the way they should? Is it my own fear and self-doubt and worry? Is it my own low self-esteem? And I just want to put a side note here that even if you are struggling with a difficult boss or a difficult family member, you're still not really fighting that person because the Bible tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The spirit that is at work against you may be coming out through them, but if you fight them, your fighting is in vain. Your fighting is futile. You will never win that battle. In fact, the enemy will wear you out quickly. You have to fight every single battle 
battle that comes against you on your knees. You cannot fight it without prayer. You cannot fight it without the word of God. You cannot fight it with, without sometimes turning over your plate and fasting because you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. You're wrestling against a spirit. And I think if anybody understands what it is to have a table set before them in the presence of their enemies, it would be Joseph. You know Joseph, the cool kid with the coat of many colors? Uh, Joseph was really, really loved by his dad. And the Bible doesn't tell us that he disliked Joseph's brothers, but his dad just had a special place for him in his heart. And so he makes him this coat of many colors, and his brothers are like, I'm not really understanding how his coat is multicolored. Ours are over here, one color. We got one color. We got black. We got black coats, and Joseph has a multicolored coat. So that was strike one, unfortunately, for Joseph. Okay? Or they may not have even had coats. Okay? If they had coats, it's probably black, white, brown, something plain. But Joseph, he's like, oh, I need the best uh, linens I can get. And they got to be multicolored. Okay? So that's number one. His brothers were just, uh, jealous because they knew how much his father favored him. But then Joseph was also a dreamer. So Joseph now has this dream, and in his dream, he is seeing basically, um, if you are interpreting the dream, his brothers are bowing down to him. Now his brothers are like, okay, Joseph, so here's, here's what's happening here, because Joseph mistakenly tells his brothers the dream. He probably thought it was safe because they were his brothers, but we see firsthand from Joseph that you cannot actually share your dream with everybody when God gives it to you, right? Because God will give you some awesome dreams, some awesome visions for your life. He may give you one or two people in your life that you can trust to share it with, but ultimately you can't just go uh, blasting it <clears throat> around the world on social media uh, or wherever it is that you want to blast it because some people can't handle it. So Joseph's like, man, I had this great dream. It was great because here I am like young Joseph and you guys are all bowing to me. And they're like, Joseph, okay, you may not be stupid, but you're crazy. If you think we as your older brothers are ever going to bow to you, you're not dumb, but you're crazy. And so the plot thickens because now they're even more jealous and upset with Joseph than they already were. And so they decide, okay, we've got to get rid of this, this, this kid because there's no way we are bowing to him ever. And so they decide that they are going to take Joseph and they're going to sell him. Okay? I'm an only child and I've always wanted siblings. I can't imagine selling my sibling. Okay, if you look at my son and my daughter, sometimes they fight like cats and dogs. But what I've noticed is that if another child comes into the scenario, all of a sudden the two of them team up. And it's like, wait, what happened? Because Izzy could be giving Caleb a really hard time. But if she sees another kid on the playground who's also giving her brother a hard time, all of a sudden the, the switch flips, right? You flip the switch and now all of a sudden it's two against one. Okay, so I can't imagine that she would ever sell her brother. I used to have friends, by the way, who had siblings, and they're like, oh, siblings can drive you to that point, you just want to sell them. I'm like, what? I could never. That's just, I mean, the unmitigated goal to sell Joseph. But that's what they did. They're like, Joseph, you're getting ready to get sold to some uh, 
uh, Gentiles. Because we can't do this. You, we're not even selling you to other Jews. You're getting sold to other Gentiles. We're going to throw you in a pit. Good riddance. Okay? And so Joseph gets sold. And when Joseph gets sold, he finds himself in Egypt. And Joseph's brothers, by the way, told his dad that, oh, dad, Joseph had a bad accident. We brought, we brought his coat, sir, but we don't have him. We, we have his coat. We don't have his body. And we're just, we're so distraught. And his dad was distraught. His dad's thinking that Joseph is killed. And so Joseph is in Egypt. But instead of him being buried and put to shame, Joseph finds himself in Potiphar's house. And he becomes an overseer in Potiphar's house. And Joseph begins to prosper. And the Bible even tells us uh, that those that were around him could tell that the hand of God was with him, could tell that the hand of God was on him. And so here it is now that the very thing that Joseph's brothers thought was going to destroy him, all they did was catapult him further into his destiny. All they did was push his chair just a little bit closer to the table that God was preparing preparing for him. And so now Joseph is in Egypt and he is prospering and he is flourishing and he is doing well. And because the enemy doesn't like to see you do well, here comes now another bit of opposition for Joseph. And so Potiphar's wife decides that she thinks Joseph looks good. She likes Joseph. She tries to tempt Joseph and asks Joseph to lay with her. And Joseph, being a man of integrity, being a man of God, he says, I am not going to do it. He refuses. And hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Potiphar's wife can't take the rejection. So she flips the story and she says that Joseph actually tried to come on to her. Instead of Potiphar giving Joseph the benefit of the doubt, and saying, you know what, this man has been so full of integrity all of this time, this doesn't sound right. He takes uh, the position of defending his wife, which I guess which is what most husbands would do, and he is angry, and he's like, Joseph, after all I've done for you, after how much we've allowed you to prosper, this is what you do, and he throws Joseph in jail. Yeah. Here again, Joseph finds himself in yet another pit. And I can imagine that Joseph at this point is really, really depressed, discouraged. Even though he may not have ultimately lost his faith in God, he was human. He had to have been like, okay, I've already been in one pit. Wrongfully, by the way. Now I'm in another pit. I'm in prison because of wrongful accusations. But the Bible says that Joseph yet again starts to flourish and prosper in the pit. He starts to be in charge of the other prisoners. And even while in there, God uses Joseph's gift to be able to interpret dreams for the other prisoners. And, and, and Joseph even says to them, hey, don't forget me right? Because there is one uh, dream that he interprets, and this guy is getting ready to be reinstated back into Pharaoh's uh, palace, and Joseph's like, hey, don't forget me. Of course, initially, he does forget, but Joseph is in prison, and I'm wondering if the reason why Joseph had enough strength to get through the prison, to get 
through the pit experiences is because he ultimately came to the realization that your enemies throw you in a pit because they want to see you destroyed. That's why they threw Daniel in a lion's den. They were hoping to see him destroyed. They were hoping to see him torn to shreds. They were hoping to see him uh, cast away and never have to deal with him again. But at some point, Joseph must have realized that my enemies may have cast me into a pit, but this is actually a good place to be. For it is in the pit that my purpose is revealed to me. It is in the pit that I gain access to the power and the anointing of God. It is in the pit where I find out what I'm really made of. It is in the pit that my faith is strengthened and my faith is renewed. It is in the pit that I draw closer to God. It is in the pit where I flourish. It is in the pit where I prosper. And so if you have just been thrown into a pit today, you should be excited because God is getting ready to prosper you. He's getting ready to give you more power. He's getting ready to give you more anointing. And just like Job, every time Joseph found himself in a pit, he always came out better than he was before he went in. Before Joseph went into the first pit, he was just the little brother that could dream and had a coat of many colors. By the time he's been out of that pit for a while, he is an overseer in Potiphar's house. People understand that he has favor with God. He is interpreting dreams. He is able to move around Egypt in a way that you wouldn't think a Jew would be able to move. Because he had the favor of God. When he's in jail now, in the pit for the second time, they thought that they had gotten rid of him. Not understanding that God was dealing with Joseph, working with Joseph, expanding his gift, giving him more insight, giving him more wisdom, giving him more discernment. So by the time Joseph comes out of that pit, he is a force to be reckoned with. So the prisoner who had a dream interpreted by Joseph says, wait a minute, because Pharaoh has had a troubling dream. And he's like, well, what is the interpretation of this dream? What does this dream mean? And God would have it that that prisoner says, wait a minute, there is somebody that I remember in the prison who can interpret dreams. And he remembers Joseph. And so God puts Joseph in a position to tell Pharaoh the meaning of his dream. Because Pharaoh had seen a dream or had had a dream and the dream was basically warning him that there was going to be seven years of famine but also seven years of plenty. And so what Joseph was doing was he was not only interpreting the dream, but God had given Joseph enough wisdom to say, hey, during the years of plenty, we kind of got to stock up. We got to put amount this aside um this amount aside this is how we're going to survive this is how we're going to be able to uh thrive and, and not die during the years of famine and then when the years of famine do come if we have this amount stored up we'll get through it and pharaoh's like wow pharaoh pharaoh used the same words that our pastor used. pharaoh's like that's dope right if you go here uh, it's Link Church. You know that that's pastor's favorite word. We tease him about it all the time. Pharaoh's like, that's dope, right? So they get ready, but it's not just that they start getting ready for how they're going to handle this famine. But Pharaoh tells Joseph that he's now going to be second in command. 
The only person that's going to now have any more power or authority than Joseph is going to be Pharaoh himself. And now Potiphar's wife and Potiphar, who put Joseph in the jail wrongfully, are now seeing the table being set before Joseph, even though they had become his enemies. But as if that weren't enough, God wouldn't allow Joseph to forget about that dream that he had. God hadn't forgot about it. <clears throat> and so as the story goes, and I'm skipping over so many parts for the sake of time, but as the story goes, Jacob, Joseph's dad, is like, hey, we're running out of food here. Um, Harris Teeter seems to be out of wheat. Food Lion seems to be out of barley. And Lidl seems to not have any water left. So I'm going to actually need you boys to go to Egypt, and you guys are going to have to get us some food. They go to Egypt, and they're trying to get some rations. They're trying to get some food, right? <clears throat> and God would so have it that they had to run into Joseph. They don't realize at first that it's Joseph. But when Joseph realizes that, wait a minute, these are the same people that put me in a pit. He probably at that point wanted to tell to them right even then and there, hey, if you want some wheat and some barley, uh, just go ahead and bow down and we can get this transaction squared away. But he doesn't do that. He allows God to continue setting his table. He doesn't go too so quickly. He has some time conversing with them. He spends time with them. They still don't realize that this is their younger brother, Joseph. And if they thought that they were jealous with his coat of many colors, then I'm sure they could have, couldn't even handle his outfit at that point, okay? And so Joseph actually uh, wants to cause a little bit of trouble for them and, and hide something in their uh, caravan or in their uh, packages that they're supposed to be taking back, right? Uh, he had placed it there, and he's like, hey, where's my, where's my uh, fork? Okay, and they find it amongst their belongings, and he's like, hey, you're going to have to, uh, I'm going to have to keep your brother Benjamin. And that was frustrating for them. It was nerve-wracking for them because he was the youngest. And they knew what they had done before. They knew they hadn't killed their brother, but they also knew they had gotten rid of him. And they're, probably, they're like, listen, if we don't go back to Egypt with the youngest, we're really going to be in for it. And things begin to continue to transpire. But in the end, his brothers bow, right? They have to bow. And guess who they're bowing to? They're bowing to Joseph. Can you imagine the look? I wish I could be a fly on the wall, right? To see their reaction when they realize that the very person that we thought we got rid of, the very person that we thought we destroyed, the very person that we thought for sure even God was going to forsake, not only is he thriving, but he is in such authority and in such a great position here in Egypt, in a land that is foreign. God will allow you to prosper in places that people won't think that you deserve to prosper in. Joseph prospered in Egypt, a place that was foreign to him, a place that before going to there, he didn't know anything about how to survive in Egypt. God will cause you to be the one that maybe has the least amount of education in the office, but yet you're promoted uh, to a managerial position 
position, not because you necessarily studied for it, but because you waited for God to set the table before you. And then the same people who say she could never get that position will watch you get promoted. And you won't just get promoted to the managerial position, but you will flourish and you will prosper. There is something about learning from God that you can't learn in a textbook, that you can't learn in school. And I'm not saying not to get a degree. I wholeheartedly believe in getting an education. But what I am saying is that beyond that, there are things that God can show you and teach you that you will not learn from a professor because he uses the uh, foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And so I imagine that Joseph's brothers were confounded. They didn't understand how on earth he rose to such prominence, how on earth he rose to such power, how on earth he had so much anointing. But Joseph in that moment would have been able to look at them and say, thank you for being my enemy because you caused God to prepare a table before me. Thank you for trying to destroy me. Thank you for trying to get rid of me because all you did was move the hand of God in my favor. When man is against you, it does not matter because if God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, nobody can destroy you. If God is for you, nobody can take you out. I have enemies, but I also have a table that is being prepared for me and it's not just being prepared for me he's gonna give me a seat right while my enemies are watching that's what I love about God is he doesn't love you secretly he doesn't love you in secret he doesn't shower you with gifts in secret sometimes human beings don't want other people to know that they're your friends or that they associate with you so they may slip you something in secret Right? Because maybe in public they're talking about you. So in private they're nice, but in public they got to act different. But God will allow you to have public pain, but private, but uh, sorry, private pain, but public promotion. God will allow you to have private agony and anguish, but public anointing. God will allow you to have private tears and private sorrow, but public elevation. We don't know how many tears Joseph must have cried when he first got to Egypt. He was a young kid without his parents, without his brothers and everything he knew. The Bible, the way we read the Bible, sometimes we feel like, oh, he got to Egypt, he was good, he started prospering. The Bible doesn't give us the details of how many sleepless nights he might have had, how many meals he was unable to eat because he was in so much stress, how much uh, pain he was in that he had his pillow wet with tears each night we don't know but we can surmise that he probably was in that level of pain the bible the bible talks about how listen if an enemy had betrayed me i could have handled that but my brother the one that i love the one that i thought loved me when they betray me how do i handle that and so now joseph in front of his brothers has that table set before him. And there is nothing like waiting until God says that it's time for your meal. What if Joseph had exacted revenge on his brothers years before that? What if he had gone back to where uh, he grew up or where he figured they might be by then? What if he had gone back and tried to have them killed? He would have never had such a beautiful table spread because God hadn't yet called Joseph for the meal.
What if Joseph, right on the spot when he realized that these were his brothers, had also had them killed or thrown into a jail because he could have done that. But Joseph refrained because God hadn't yet told him it was time for the meal. Joseph knew that God can set a table better than anybody. I don't care how many etiquette books you read. I don't care how, many fine, how much fine china you have in your house. I don't care how many gold-plated utensils you may have sitting in your drawer. Can't nobody set a table like Jesus. But what does it look like when God sets the table? Because that is what our topic is today. When God sets the table, what does that look like? First of all, when God sets the table, he gives you absolutely nothing but the best. Right? Remember I said earlier that I don't call my kids to the table before I know that the meat and the size are done because I don't want to give them something that would be to their detriment. And if I, as an earthly mom, have that much concern for my children, how much more is God going to make sure that when you sit at the table, everything is just as it should be? Not only does he give you uh, the best meat and the best sides and the best beverages, but he gives you the utensils that you need. What are the utensils that you need? Why do you need utensils uh, in the spiritual sense? Because your utensils are your tools. There is no point in God giving you blessings and favor without giving you the wisdom and the insight of how to handle it. God did not just give Joseph these blessings, but he also gave Joseph what he needed to be able to handle the favor and the promotion and the blessings that he was giving to Joseph. And so God will make sure that you not only have blessings, but he will make sure that you are equipped to handle those blessings once they have come into your hand. And then God will say, now, before I call you to the table, let me make sure your enemies have a front row seat. And why does he make sure that your enemies have a front row seat? Because he wants to remind the devil that there is no weapon that is formed against you that is able to prosper. He wants to remind the devil that the weapon may have scratched you, it may have burned you, it may have even knocked you down. Because the Bible didn't say the weapons wouldn't hurt, it said that they would form. What it did say though is that they would not prosper. And sometimes the enemy loses his head. He seems to have selective amnesia and he thinks that you you are the child of God that's not going to make it through. You are the child of God that's not going to succeed. You are the child of God that's too weak to overcome. And so God has to send him a friendly reminder that not only am I going to get him out of this, not only am I going to get her through this, but I'm going to make sure, devil, that you are there to see every bit of their victory so that you know that once you come against them, you also come against me. One can chase a thousand, but two can put 10,000 to flight. God wants your enemy to know that they cannot triumph over you. And so don't worry when it seems like your enemies are surrounding you. God's not only preparing a table for you, he's building them a chair so that they'll have somewhere to sit and see what the Lord has done. That is what it looks like when God sets the table. It looks like you're surrounded by enemies, and it looks like you're going to be devoured, and it looks like you're never going to overcome, and it looks like you're never going to be able to 
overcome your challenges or your circumstances, but really what God is doing is he's setting you up like he did for Joseph. He's setting you up like he did for Job. When you come out of whatever storm it is that you are going through, you are coming out better than you were before you went in. The Bible tells us that as wealthy as Job was before, by the time he got out of his storm, he had more than he had before he went in the storm. You think you're anointed now. You think you have power now. You think you're close to God now. You think you're in healthy relationships now. You think that your job is going well now. So you're wondering why do you have to have this storm? Because God is getting ready to give you better than you had before you even went in. He is preparing a table for you. But because God is perfect, because he is all-wise and all-knowing, he will not call you for that meal or to sit at that table before it's time. He says in his word that the blessings of the Lord maketh rich and adds no sorrow. That means he's not going to give you something before it's time if he knows it's going to be to your detriment. He's not going to call you before your meat is cooked. He's not going to call you before the sides are ready. He's not going to call you before you have the maturity to handle what it is he's placing in your hands. He is going to call you right at the time when he knows that once you get a hold of this thing, you are going to flourish and you are going to prosper. That is what it looks like when God sets the table. It is perfect it is extravagant. It is beautiful. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. And God is one of those people. He's the perfect gift giver. He doesn't give you a gift that somebody gave to him hoping that you'll like it. Because you know some of us do that, right? Sometimes you get a gift card and you're like, ooh, that's a gift card to such and such place. I'm going to re-gift it. Not even because it's not a gift of value. Maybe it's something you feel like you can't use, you don't like. But God doesn't recycle that way. Everything he gives for, to you is for you and it is for you alone. Because just like he gave us our own unique fingerprints, he has given you your own calling and your own purpose and your own destiny and your own identity. And so what God is getting ready to give you, there is nobody else that can uh, have what it is that is for you. Wait for God to call you. Wait for God to finish setting the table. Stop trying to get to the table too early. Stop trying to go ahead of schedule and get your blessings before God has ordained them. Wait for God to set the table. I don't know about you, but I want God to set my table. When it comes to the spiritual things in this life, when it comes to my purpose, when it comes to my destiny, I want God to set the table. I don't even want to set my own table. He knows me better than I know myself. And so even the things that I think I need or that I think I want, they may not line up with his will. I don't want to set my own table. I want God to set my table. And the best part about it is he's going to set it right in the presence of my enemies, right in the presence of my self-doubt, right in the presence of my fear, right in the presence of my depression and my low self-esteem, right in the presence of that boss who is hoping that I'll find a way uh, to get myself fired, right in the presence of that professor or that teacher that doesn't want me to pass this course, right in front of the pres uh, right in the presence of those who have been speaking ill against my success right in the presence of my financial hardship, right in the presence of those who are hoping that my marriage would fail or that my kids would fail, right in the presence of all of those enemies, God is setting my table. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. 
For more information about Link Church, you can visit us on the web at www.linkchurchnc.org.